Well, welcome back to the show, Mark. It's always fun to talk to you about your books about dogs and your new book, which is called A Dog's World, Imagining the Lives of Dogs in a World Without Humans, gives us a lot of fodder to cover today. So congratulations on your book. Yeah, thanks. And, you know, I want to obviously make it clear that Jessica Pierce was a co-author. And yes, thank you. I, was, wanted to, I did want to mention that too. Thank and you this was our fourth book together. Um, yes. And yeah, I mean, such fun things about dogs, but this has a lot of substance to it. Well, yeah, I mean, like all our books, it's it's science based, but, you know, it's made to be read by people who either don't know much science or don't care about science. Um, so it's science based. And yeah, it was a really fun book to write because it's it's the most eclectic book that um that Jessica and I have written, at least that's our attitude. And we had no idea where it was gonna go. I mean, we, we had an idea about what we wanted to write about, but as you know, as an author of a book, what your book looks like on day one, there's nothing what it looks like on day, you know, 700 Definitely. and something two years later. So Definitely. it was, and, yeah. um, and I'm pleased that people really like it. Yeah. And, you know, when I first looked at the book and you told me what it was about, immediately I thought of that sort of, it's almost a little silly, the book about, um, it's called The World Without Us, Imagining mm -hmm. a World Without Humans. And it's a little over the top in terms of romancing how the world would go back to a perfect state, which uh, I don't think it's ever been in. But anyway, when you write about dogs in a world without humans, you're not writing about the same thing at all. You're writing about real science and you're <clears throat> hypothesizing. And I loved how you started out saying that, um, and I'm going to quote this, writing a book about dogs in a world without humans can perhaps counterintuitively help us answer the question, how can humans give dogs the best possible life in a world with humans? And that's such an important thought. So how do you use what you wrote about in your book to give dogs a better life with humans? Yeah. Um... In fact, that's actually something uh, Jessica and I have been revisiting. It kind of got lost in the in the mess of papers and books and countless, you know, Zoom sessions when we were writing. But right, so when you think about who dogs are, who we are, and the nature of dog-human relationships, you know, you really realize that there's a couple of points that I think your listeners need to know. Number one. Um, only about 25% of dogs in the entire world are homed dogs. So it's estimated there's around a billion dogs. So give or take 750 million dogs are free ranging or feral, which means they might have some contact with humans. They may get some care, food and support from humans, but they're not living you know, in a home. The other point is that and this is just really well known that among home dogs, there are some serious, um, if you will, psychological problems because we force people, we force dogs to live our lives. You know, we control them. They're really captive animals in many ways, and they're walked on leashes. We tell them when they can pee and poop, where they can pee and poop, what they can eat, when they can eat, when they can play, with whom they can play. Right. Um, and so what it did in the end, and I think we revisited it a lot towards the end of the book, is it was like 
well, if we're not here, how will dogs do? And the conclusion we draw is some dogs will do very well, some won't, but it's not going to be an overall catastrophe for dogs. And there were some surprises there in the sense that a lot of dogs would probably do well without us down the line. In other words, first generation dogs who are used to having people around or, you know, whether they're free ranging or not or homed um, might have a difficult time, but dogs are carnivores. Um, they come from wolves. They have wolf genes. There's a lot of little memory engrams in their brains that are wolf-like. So over time, they'll probably do pretty well without us. Yeah. And for someone like you that frequents dog parks a lot, I'm sure you see that there are a lot of social interactions in dogs that are very oh, second nature to them or really first nature to them. And, you know, they would probably form packs and live very social lives without any of us around to take them to dog parks. Oh, yeah, I've done studies. And, you know, about 85 percent of the time when people are interacting with their dog, they're saying or doing something that says, don't do that. No, right. stop it. Maybe 5% of the time, do they actually just spontaneously say something like good dog? And whenever I would go to dog parks, not only in Boulder, you know, I might say to a dog, good dog. And some people would go, yeah, you know, he is a good dog or she is a good time, dog most of the time. But some people would say, well, why did you say good dog? You know, they didn't do anything. And I thought, well, you wouldn't raise a kid without at least giving them some encouragement, yeah, right? Yeah, that, yeah. That, meaning that you're a good being. You know, you don't have to do something to be told that you're a good being. So you're right. What we basically do is we strip them of their dogginess, of their dogdom, because they are canids, they are carnivores, and they still have a lot of, if you will, evolutionary momentum from when they were wolves, which, which isn't that long ago, maybe 15, 20,000 years right, ago. Right, yeah. And as you say in the book, it's really easy and very inviting too, to look backwards in time and try to figure out where did dogs come from? How did we domesticate them? You know, what are the genetic changes? And there's all these really fascinating spin-offs that you can get into, which people have done, like for instance, how curly tails evolved with domestication. But, you know, it's, it's so, like I said, it's enticing to look backwards, but what you and Jessica are doing is looking forwards and it's the same kind of evolutionary continuum. And so it's a really, it's a fun read, but it's, it's based in real sound evolutionary science, what you're doing in the book, projecting, you know, into the future, what's going to happen to dogs based on what we know about them now. Right. And what we did, um, I'm a biologist, Jessica's more of a bioethicist philosopher who knows a lot of biology. But, you know, so for example, we have a section in the book called The Shape of the Future. And when we asked people, you know, just randomly as we were writing the book, you know, will big dogs do better than little dogs or vice versa? And, you know, most people said big dogs will do better. But that's not necessarily the case because big dogs will compete more with other members of their communities. I mean, you have to remember when dogs are on their own, they're going to become members of wild communities. They're going to have to interact with tigers and lions and wolves and bears, depending, you know, depending where they yeah. live. Yeah. So it's not necessarily the case that large dogs will do better because small dogs 
will um, they won't be probably as fierce competitors. You know, a wild a wolf or a bear or a tiger might look at a small dog as an hors d'oeuvre. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, in terms of getting food, they'll be able to get food. But once again, small dogs will have lower caloric needs so they could satisfy what they need biologically right. to survive right. um, better, you know, better than a, um, a large dog um, having sex, you know, I mean, they'll be easily able to attract mates, they'll flirt, they'll court, you know, they'll, they'll make more children. And once again, we among home dogs usually don't give the mother or the father usually any opportunity to be a parent. But what we were pleased to learn from studies of free ranging dogs, which is really the best comparative base, is that in the, in the wild, free ranging and feral dogs, the mothers do well, they often get father care and they often, you know, they often have aunts, uncles and older siblings, helpers, we call them, mm -hmm. who, who help them develop. So, you know, the basic things, food and sex, they'll have no problem um, dealing with. Right, right. And that's something that I really liked about the book is it's, it's kind of a primer on dog biology. So even though there's a lot of evolutionary um, theory and speculation about what will happen in the future, there's so much factual biology. So in fact, for dog owners, I think this is a great book as like the dog Bible, you know, where would you go in um, like almost a pocket guide to your dog's biology? Yeah, I, I'm really pleased to hear that, Beth, because that was a message. We didn't want to come out and just say it because it's not meant to be, you know, a dog love human or a human love dog book, like a self-help right. dog book. Yeah, and it's not yeah. meant to be a training manual, but you know, you're right. And I mean, one of the things also is dogs will form packs. Dogs form packs now, especially free ranging dogs and feral dogs. But one of the practical applications of this is that it doesn't mean because they form packs that when they live in a home, they're a pack and we should become their dominant pack leader, mm -hmm. you know, sort of of the season Milan variety where you, it's okay to dominate. And in many ways, or, you know, just, you know, harm a dog, punish them, hit them or something like that. And so that came out because a lot of times people go, Oh, wolves are just violent all the time. Well, they're not. I mean, wolves will fight. They definitely have pretty serious uh, aggressive encounters. But the basic pattern of interaction in a wolf pack, which is an extended family and maybe some unrelated individuals, is that they solve their disputes in more peaceful ways. Because when you're a wild animal, even if you're a dominant animal, you don't want to get hurt because you're not going to get veterinary care. Right. So, you, you know, you can get hurt. And um, so, you know, in, and, and, and also, you know, in terms of their cognitive skills, um, are they smart, uh, their emotional capacities, they easily have what they need in terms of, you know, dog smarts and emotional intelligence to live on their own. Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. once again, you know, they're only, they've only been domesticated for give it whatever, 30,000 years, some say 15, some say 40. But the one thing that biologically is going to happen is dogs 
who can't breathe on their own or can't exercise because mm -hmm. they can't breathe. Or there's dogs who can't copulate and or give birth without right. help. They're not going to make it. And one of the reviewers of our books said that the only way those dogs will make it is if they learn to perform cesareans, which, <laughs> which we thought was just you know, very cute, if you will. But, but the fact of the matter is, you know, we're not going to be playing around with their reproduction. We're, you know, part of domestication, and Darwin wrote about it, it's, he called it artificial selection or human selection. It's, it's really selecting for the traits that we find to be appealing. And the dogs don't care what they look like. They only, they only might care what they look like if they can't breathe or make, more, make children. Right. And probably being born into that body, they just, you know, accept what they've got. Dogs are very good at accepting present reality in my limited experience with them. But um, that that's a cool thing about your book. I hadn't realized there were so many uh, traits that have been selected that are really maladaptive for dogs. Like I knew about the, the short noses causing breathing difficulty. And of course, everyone I think knows about the numerous instances of hip dysplasia. But mm -hmm. I didn't realize there were some breeds that couldn't give birth without a yeah. cesarean. That's kind of shocking. Well, yeah, I mean, they're, they're more, you know, we talk a lot about body size and morphology, which is really shape. And well, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's, they, they can't mate because the male can't basically mount the female and the female can't give birth because of the size of her pelvic girdle. Mm -hmm. And so it's all done you know, externally, you know, by veterinarians or uh -huh. by people who mid midwives, I guess, or mid dogs. And, um, and, and, and so, yeah, they're going to disappear and there will be strong natural selection. I mean, the, the huge message is that artificial selection is going to be replaced by different forms of natural selection and natural selection is, if you will, you know, it's blind in a sense, you know, um, you know, it, 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 natural selection is going to work on keeping individuals alive so that they can reproduce and then have young who will then go on to reproduce. It's not based on aesthetics driven by human tastes. I mean, you know, there are aesthetics in nature and there are beautiful animals and there may be animals who aren't so who are more dully, dull colored or something, but it's not based on what you and I want. <laughs> it's based on yeah, basically yeah. who survives and goes on to make children. Right. And you, you and Jessica make projections about what dogs are going to look like. And that might be a little surprising to readers of the book who haven't really given that any thought. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's dingoes in Australia. So there's a thought that they'll go back to being medium sized you know, give or take tan or reddish animals, but we don't know because a lot of it will depend on who mates with whom. So, you know, you're not going to have Great Danes mating with chihuahuas of either combination of male and female. It just ain't going to happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you're also not going to, you know, produce these maladaptive phenotypes like short, you know, short faces where they can't breathe or tiny legs on a huge body. Mm -hmm. They're just not going to survive on their own. And I don't, I mean, I don't say that. I'm not saying it in a heartless way, but in a sense, natural selection is heartless, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, if these animals who look, if they look a certain way and they can't satisfy their caloric needs and they can't 
say, escape from competitors or compete for food and defend food, they're just not going to make it just like the wild relatives of dogs like jackals in Africa and coyotes and foxes and wolves. Um, right. And, and that's what, you know, it was thinking about all those things that, you know, once again, at the end of the book, you know, we, we wrote the first chapter knowing that we were going to rewrite the whole thing when we feel we had a pretty good draft of the book. But, um, but that's what, once again, you know, forced us to go back to really, really thinking about how we interact with dogs now. And the two, two comments I'll make before we close is when, when we asked people, they said, well, look at Chernobyl. Well, it turns out dogs in Chernobyl have, have now and have had a lot of human support. So it's, it's not like they were on their own in a radioactive field. There were humans there and the people who work there have always been feeding them. So Chernobyl, the bottom line is Chernobyl's not a um, comparative data set, if you will, for what will happen. Um, you know, and the other message is that, well, you know, we really don't know in the end whether there'll be one phenotype or one one average looking dog because they're going to have to adapt to the habitats where they live. And, you know, in colder climates, the dogs may be larger than they are in the mm. desert. And that's, that's what people really forget about is dogs are diverse. Right now they live all over the planet and we need to get out of the mindset of thinking about dogs who we know at home or dogs who we know are free ranging where we live. Right, right. And you you give a little bit of, of a hint of that when you talk about the diversity in body forms in the canids, you know, from really big Arctic wolves to little tiny fennec foxes. There's a huge yes. range. It, right. And but, you know, a lot of people don't know all the well, I, I shouldn't say it because it sounds I don't mean it in an arrogant way, but a lot of people don't know all the canids, you know, yeah, from tiny yeah. little tiny little kit foxes and bad-eared uh -huh. foxes to, uh -huh. you know, wolves who can weigh 170 pounds. Yeah, and I thought it was great that you gave that introduction to canid taxonomy because, like you said, a lot of people don't realize that. Oh, good. No, we're glad because, you know, because it's, you know, the book is written for a popular audience, but we, as you know, too, from, you know, your book that Sometimes academics know enough to write for academics, but they have no idea how to boil it down for people who aren't academics. And that's where a lot of the work comes in writing a book like this is, you know, you can baffle them with, you know, just junk. But if you really want to get the message across, you've got to explain what natural selection is. You've got to explain Darwinian evolution. Um, and we really worked hard on that. It's just like just like Jessica is an ethicist when um, we were writing about doomsday prepping, you know, what could we do for dogs now to prepare them for the future when we're not here, but have that inform how we interact with them now to make their lives better. I mean, you could just write all this garbage, but if you really want to write it so that, you know, people all over the world could understand how they could make their dog's life better right now, you've got to boil it down and be very simplistic. And I don't mean that as an insult because academics tend to go overboard with academic jargon, which means little to nothing to people who just want to know, what can I do to give my dog a better life? That, yeah, that's, that's such a good point. And you did a really great job 
of expressing it in ordinary day-to-day -day language that's really accessible and really interesting. And that sounds like a really good point at which to leave it. How can we make life better for dogs? So do you have any final thoughts on what we should all be doing for dogs? Well, we should let them be dogs and accept the fact that, you know, they do entirely dog appropriate, um, although they'll engage in entirely appropriate dog um, behavior. So they like to sniff, they'll, you know, on their own, they'll sniff up to a third of the time when they're walking about. So don't pull them away and say there's nothing there because there's a lot there, you know, it'd be like putting a rope around your neck and pulling you away from looking at a beautiful work of art. Right. Um, so, right. so let them sniff, let them be dogs. Um, they are going to pee. And I know people don't want dogs peeing in their house and I don't blame them. <laughs> yeah. But, but you know, when they go to a dog park, just stop saying no all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, a, and a really big message is also let them learn to resolve conflicts on their own. It's mm -hmm. not, it, you know, in, in a sense, it's not, it would not only be preparation for a world without us where they'll have to solve conflicts, but a lot of people don't know that, you know, less than 1% of say rough and tumble play um, escalates into aggression of any sort. And, and even less than that escalates into a fight. So I wanna be very clear here. I'm not saying it never happens, but if you're a dog guardian or parent and you resolve conflict for your dog all the time, they will not learn how to resolve conflict on their own. And I've heard, you know, I've had child, child psychologists say, well, that's the same as kids, you know, right, right. you don't want them to beat one another up or harm one another, but they need to learn to resolve com conflict. They also need to learn how to make friends on their own. So, yeah, sounds I just so say, much like, like, oh, God, kids. sorry. It sounds so much like kids, but on a slightly different evolutionary track. It, exactly. And, and, you know, just let them be dogs. And, and, you know, the other message that we give, but, you know, to me, it's a no brainer. If you're going to take a dog into your home and your heart, become fluent in dog, become dog literate. Um, a very small percentage of people actually know very much about dog behavior when they make that huge decision. And that's another message of the book is it's a huge decision and responsibility to bring a dog into your life. It's a, it's a life changer. It's a game changer. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, absolutely. You know, don't, don't feel you need to need to do it and prepare yourself. It's like, you know, it's like learning how to drive a car. You don't, well, unfortunately, some people <laughs> take, take driving lessons and can't drive, but but sure. you need to teach yourself something about what dogs need. And once again, we, we believe our book can do that by looking at what we can do right now to prepare them for the future without us. And what absolutely, we can do. absolutely. Yeah. And so I would recommend this book for anybody that has a dog and wants to get along with them better or treat them better. And for people that are thinking about dogs and Mark, I'll link to um, your website and the book places where they can purchase the book um, in our show notes. Thank you so much for talking today. My pleasure, Beth. And thank you all for listening. And I hope you enjoy your life with your dog if you have one. <laughs>